welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Okay, so we're in a series called Kingdom Culture, and the last four weeks, we've looked at one verse in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, has been, is really the primary message of Jesus summarized by the Gospel writer Mark. And for four weeks, we've looked at this verse, and Jesus says in Mark 1, 15, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And so we started talking about what did Jesus mean by good news? What, what is the gospel according to Jesus? We talked about the, the, the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he meant a specific time that was promised by the prophets of the Old Testament. We've talked about the kingdom of God is like salsa, which is my favorite sermon because it involves food. And, um, and we talked about it's a reality to be experienced, that God's available presence, rule and reign, what life would look like if God was in charge is available to us here and now. That his message was not good news about what happens when you die, that you'll go somewhere else then and there, but his message was about that reality of life being available here and now. And then the last week we talked about repent and believe, what it means to repent and believe. And it has something to do with uh, investing your entire life, being persuaded, being convinced, putting your life... Um, where it matters, but also it's really a call to join the revolution, that Jesus was calling his followers, those that would hear the message of the kingdom, to become a full participant in this new reality. So that's a summary. You're welcome for the intro. Um, But now, if you've missed it, we're going to jump into it like a new season uh, of teaching on kingdom culture. I want to talk about observations that I see, because what we want to do is take the message of Jesus and now look at his life and the stories of the gospel and try to understand what Jesus was doing in his time and what kind of observations we can make today based on back then on how to build kingdom culture in our everyday life. I am passionate about this fact that so much of, of what we can do with the scriptures is try to make it spiritual. Like we read scripture as these stories that are outside of the ordinary stuff we're experiencing. But what I want to do now is take the four weeks in the theology of the kingdom and spend some time taking, stretching it out and just looking at the various facets of the kingdom reality. What does it look like to now take that message and apply it to everyday life? What does it mean for stay-at-home moms? What does it mean for teenagers in middle school? What does it mean for plumbers who, who run a plumbing company? What does it mean for theologians, for entrepreneurs, for business owners, from those that are suffering severely with sickness and on medical, dis, uh, medical leave from work? What does it mean that the kingdom is available here and now and how, we can, how do we build it together? Does that make sense? So that's, my whole, that's the whole point of this series, is I want us to understand the power of his message in life for ordinary life, okay? So that's what I'm going to attempt to do. So I want to make um, some observations about what I see the kingdom of culture embodying and, and doing. So remember, culture is a set of shared values, attitudes, goals, practices, and relational boundaries. Culture is an environment you create around you or you participate in around you. Um, and so we've talked about the, you know, I, I shared an example of going to a fancy hotel versus going to the Legoland Hotel. Two very different cultures. If you've ever experienced a fancy hotel when you walk in, you feel like you have to apologize and you don't belong. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Or you go to a hotel designed for kids' imagination and that has a whole culture 
um, that is is from that you you experience from what kids are allowed to do, the way they're allowed to play. There's literally a pit, a pool of Legos that they play in in the lobby, um, and and there's stuff for them to do treasure hunts, and it's designed completely for families, uh, versus the design for an experience of beauty and and whatever else that you know the wealthy nice hotels are designed for. Anyways, you guys can go with that, but I want to give you another example. So. I want to talk about culture, how we experience or create culture around us. You can see it um, in the effects it has on people. So two case studies, I suppose, to begin. First of all, um, I want to talk about Jonathan Edwards. How many of you know who Jonathan Edwards is? Jonathan Edwards was the prominent Puritan preacher in the 1700s. He was one of the most influential and respected preachers of his day. He attended Yale at the age of 13 years old and later became the president of Princeton College. He married his wife in 1727, and they were blessed with 11 children. 11 kids. I'm looking at my wife going, I don't even know what that means. 11 kids. And he worked, and he saw revival in some ways in his ministry and life. But every night when Jonathan Edwards was home, he would spend an hour conversing with his family, and then he prayed a blessing over every child every night. Jonathan Edwards and his wife passed on a great and godly legacy with their 11 children. And they've, their family and legacy has, has been studied by sociologists. Jonathan Edwards' legacy includes one U.S. vice president, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates. It's amazing. That's, that's legacy. What kind of culture did Jonathan Edwards and his wife create in their family to empower that type of legacy of, of success and, and faith and public service? He was, they say, you know, the, why can it be explained? Well, he and his wife created a culture for their family to flourish with the values that they embodied. Now, there's an American educator, A.E. Winship, who decided to trace the descendants of Jonathan Edwards over 150 years, and this is what we discovered, these, these facts. But his findings are remarkable, especially when compared to another man that they studied in a similar time named Max Jukes. Most of you have never heard of Max Jukes. Here's a picture of Max. Max Jukes. He, he also has a legacy that's been recorded and studied um, and it came about when people discovered that he had 42 different men in the New York State prison at the same time, and all of the, those men traced their family tree traced back to him. So one, uh, and he lived at the same time period as Jonathan Edwards. And Juke's descendants or legacy includes the, the following, seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 other convicts, 30, 310 paupers, and four, 440 who were physically wrecked by addiction and alcohol. Of the 1,200 descendants of Max Jukes that were studied, 300 died prematurely. Now, for our purposes, this is a great case study of the kind of culture that you can create around you, both positive or negative. Now, these contrasting legacies provide an example for what some people have called the fifth generation rule, which is how, to par- how a parent raises their child, they, the love they give, the values they teach, the emotional environment they offer, the education they provided influences not only their children, but the fourth generations to follow either good or evil. 
So both Edwards and Jukes created a culture for their families, um, and not just their families, but future families that would follow. So that's, who do you want to be like, Jonathan Edwards or Max Jukes? Obviously, that's an obvious question. But why I bring this up is because I think this has some, that this demonstrates something that you see uh, about culture, but also about Jesus and the kind of culture he created with the kingdom. We are all here because of the culture that Jesus created around his life. Now, just think about that. 2,000 years later, billions of Christians around the world are present because of, a, of this way of life that Jesus brought. It, it was supernatural. It was miraculous. But he created an environment, a culture around him that empowered others to flourish. One of the, the first observations that we see about the kingdom, of what the kingdom of God is like, is the kingdom of God is a kingdom of empowerment. And I want to talk about this because I think it's so important that as we move from this theology of what the kingdom is like, of what Jesus said, how do we begin to live this out? And one of the first things we learn right away is that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of empowerment. Empowerment, by definition, is, uh, a, means authority or power given to someone else. And this is what we see over and over again in the, the stories of the New Testament and the Old Testament. What we see in the Old Testament is God wanting to partner and empower people to be part of his restoration or renewal process and change. So you see that with Abraham. You see that with Moses. You see that with Gideon. You see that through all David and Solomon and, and the prophets. God chooses ordinary broken people to be empowered to carry his message, to carry his way, to carry his power, to be a part of the restoration and renewal of Israel, the nation of Israel. And then we get to the New Testament and we see that Jesus begins to release his ministry and empower other people to do the things that he was doing. So I wanna talk about the kingdom of empowerment. You guys good with that? Let's talk about it. If, no? You guys all right? If you don't want to hear this, you can leave, all right? I'm, here. I'm going to preach this to myself. I know it's good. I need to hear it. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at a couple of stories in Matthew. I want to just show you this. And I'm looking at the theme of the kingdom of empowerment. I want to give you, we're going to look at different ways to see the kingdom throughout Jesus' ministry and what it means for us today. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. So in Mark's gospel, it, Mark chapter 1 Verse 15, it ends with Jesus' message, and the very next story is this story in Mark's gospel of Jesus calling his disciples. So let's read what happens in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on, from there, he saw two other brothers, James, and John, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So this is the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. We've talked about this. Remember, this is a rabbinic moment where Jesus, as a rabbi, is calling his Talmudim, his disciples or apprentices, to follow him. And when a rabbi would do that, they're saying a couple of things. And we've defined what it means to be an apprentice or a disciple of Jesus today or to be an apprentice of the kingdom is that we are called to be with our rabbi, become like our rabbi, and do what our rabbi did. So we're called to be with, become like, and do the things that Jesus did. So that's in context what's happening 
in this story, as Jesus as a rabbi is calling his first Talmudin, his apprentices, to follow him. But I want to just make some observations about this, because normally we've learned this. Contextually, you're looking for the best of the best of the best. Jesus doesn't go to the, the graduates of the, the, the school. He, he's going to um, the Sea of Galilee and calling fishermen. Now, what you need to know is that this says something about Jesus that I think we should note because it's true today. What was true about Jesus in the New Testament is true about Jesus today. Jesus has faith in us before we have faith in him. That this story shows us that Jesus has faith in us before we have faith in him. You could say that Jesus believes in us before we even believe in ourselves. Because Jesus sees our potential. He sees what we were made for. He sees our true self. And it takes most of us years of hard work to really understand and accept who we really are. But Jesus only knows how to deal with our true self. So we see some fishermen, and he says to Peter, Peter, I will make you fishers of men, is one translation, which is a, a rabbinic first century term for being a great teacher. I will take you from doing this and show you how you will become a great teacher like me, is essentially what this rabbi is saying to this potential student. Now just think about that. Right from the get-go, we see a story in context. It's not, they leave everything because Jesus is saying to these guys who are fishing, you have what it takes to be like me and do what I did. Is that good news? He's empowering people where they are and takes them where they are and brings them to a place where they never thought they could be. This is what empowerment looks like. You don't get to where Peter will stand up in a crowd and preach the gospel in Acts chapter two and then in Acts three, heal the sick. You don't get there overnight. There was a process to get to that promise. Does that make sense? So the kingdom culture is about empowerment. And when we, when we think about empowering, we have to see that Jesus has faith in us before we have faith in him. And I would even say Jesus has faith in us before we deserve it. He believes in us before we can prove that we're even worth it. Interesting. So let's keep going. So the story continues. Peter is called. I'm gonna highlight Peter through this text and just making some observations about what happens. Then a couple of chapters later, Matthew chapter 10, let's go there. Let's read this together. So he calls his disciple disciples, he heals the sick, he casts out demons. He then, um, he does the Sermon on the Mount, which is this amazing sermon on how to live in the kingdom. A couple of other things go on, and then you get to Matthew 10, um, and it says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and look what it says, and gave them authority, empowerment, right, to give authority or power to someone else. Gave them authority to drive out the impure spirits, and to heal every disease and sickness, to do what Jesus was doing. And let's read the names. I want, you to hear, I want you to see this. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do 
Do not go among the Gentiles or to any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now, if you were to look back past the last nine chapters, or let's just say five chapters, from chapter four when he calls his disciples to chapter nine, you would see that what Jesus did before this moment is Jesus preached the kingdom, healed the sick, raised the dead, cleansed those who have le- had, had leprosy, and he drove out demons. So essentially, Jesus models his ministry and then takes these young men, who, by the way, they're probably ages of 14 to 20, and says, now go and do what I've been doing, right? And now who's included in the 12? Judas. Now, I want you to think about this. We have to like pull ourselves into the story. Jesus is taking 12 guys who will become world changers. He's gonna empower them with the authority and power to do the things that he was doing. And we have to assume that Judas was actually doing the things that Jesus did. He was probably casting out demons and healing the sick and raising the dead. And we, we read that that's what the disciples do. So the same culture that empowers 11 world changers also empowers Judas. What does that mean? Well, I think when we have an empowering culture, we're okay with it getting a little messy. We're okay with the lines being a little blurred on certain things because we want to see the fire and the truth and the life of God move forward and not be shut down. Now, this, I, I, I'm not, there are some things I'm saying and there are some things I'm not saying right now. But I, what I am saying is Jesus was comfortable with Judas being with him until the moment he was betrayed. And also he gave Judas the authority over the treasury, the money he was stealing from it. And he didn't put Matthew, the tax collector, who's probably really good with money in charge of it. You think that's interesting? Like he's okay with the mess. And, and the reason I wanted to share this mo- moment with you, because I feel like in the church, we love control. We love control and clear definition of lines of who's in and out. And even as we do things like this, we want it to be uh, perfected in some ways and not as awkward in some ways. And, and we, want, we, want, we want to have control over things. And if we want control, we won't empower others. We won't. Like if I want my children to learn to play, um, then I'm gonna have to let go of certain things that I, like Alex is regularly challenging me on this because I wanna also, I want them to be really safe. And sometimes in my need for safety, I disempower play. Does that make sense? Like I'm not letting him run around with knives all the time, just once in a while. I'm not letting them play with fire or those things, but there are times when they can fall and hurt themselves and go, yeah, you got hurt. Otherwise, I'll prevent them from life. I'll prevent them from growing and exploring. And the same is true in the kingdom of God. Like I was in, uh, at, last year I traveled a lot in different contexts, preaching and teaching on the, the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit. How do you create an empowering culture in, in the spirit? And there are a few conversations I had at one of the places that I went to with some of the leaders that were really concerned about the ministry of the spirit being available for everyone their concern was, well, what about new Christians who haven't been 
uh, gone through a process of spiritual formation. Like, can they prophesy? Can they have words of knowledge and practice praying for others? Don't you need to take them through this process of spiritual formation for them to become like Jesus before they operate in the gifts? And I said, absolutely not. Like, when you come into faith, it's all of it. Right? The Spirit comes, and now you get to learn in a community. And the, if we're living authentically in community, we should f- empower our brothers and sisters who just said yes to Jesus to begin to learn to operate in the things of the Spirit. Because if they don't jump into that culture, they're jumping into a different culture that will never empower that reality. Does that make sense? So for me, it's like I love new Christians that come and get baptized in our church that don't have church backgrounds because they don't know any better oh, I'm supposed to pray for the sick? Yeah, I'll do that now. Cool. They're not thinking, well, I come from this culture that says that it doesn't happen and you got to, you know, this is, you know, all these things and these, there's all these roadblocks. Non-Christians are most likely to get healed on the street versus Christians because they don't know any better. It honestly is true. If you pray for a non-Christian, I would way rather pray for a non-Christian to be healed than a Christian to be healed. Because they don't know. Yeah, okay, you go. Yeah, pray for me. I was going to go to the doctor. You pray. Great. Oh, yeah, it feels better. Awesome. Cool. What do you, you want? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll give my life to Jesus. Cool. Let's go. And like, now they're going to go and do it. It's empowerment. The kingdom of empowerment. Same culture that empowers 11 world changers will also empower the Judases. And now in a community, we, we have to look out for that. But I, I just want to say we can empower all of it. I love this quote, and, and some people disagree with it, but it's from Dennis Bennett. In a revi- he was leading a revival in the Episcopalian church at one point, and he said, um, it's better to have a little bit of wildfire than no fire at all. I believe that. It's like it's messy in the nursery or in the kids' rooms, and it's clean, neat, and tidy in the graveyard. What do you want to be a part of? I want to be a part of a culture that empowers every person to play. And notice what Jesus does. He says, freely you've received, freely give. This is, uh, I think, a philosophy of ministry for Jesus, that he gives away everything he has and he empowers others to do the same. Whatever you've received, give that away. That's part of what it means to build a culture of empowerment. We don't control outcomes. We surrender the outcomes. And trust Jesus with them if we want to see empowerment. Now, take everything I'm saying and apply this to your family life. Apply this to your relationships. If you try to control your relationships, you will end it or do a lot of damage. But if you release and empower others, if you release your spouse to be herself and discover their, themselves and with Jesus and you stop trying to control their outcomes to give yourself what you want from them. Does anyone else know what I'm talking about? Like you say that comment in a particular tone and way because you don't approve of what they're doing or how they're doing what they're doing because it's not the way you would do it. I'm getting closer to my babe. <laughs> I'm so sorry about that, babe. Hey, she did forgive me for last week's conflict. Just so you know, if you were here. So yeah, thank you. thank you. Thanks for your prayers and that. That was so good. All right, let's keep going. So um, I think people... Uh, need to be discipled in spiritual formation, of course, but you don't, we can't just start there. We have people have to recognize that the Spirit empowers you where you are, as you are, and wants you to participate right now in the whole thing, in all of it, in all of the kingdom life. Are you with me? So Matthew 14, kingdom of empowerment. Matthew 14, I love, I love this story. So 
The story in context is Matthew 14, verse 22. In context, Jesus uh, is trying to get his disciples away into a solitary place to rest because they've been doing ministry and they're tired and exhausted. He gets to the other side and there's a crowd of people. So many people, there's 5,000 men. They don't count the women and children. Tons of people. And there's a miracle where they spend all day preaching and ministering because Jesus has compassion. And then he feeds 5,000. There's a miracle. And what's amazing in that story, which we don't have time to get into, is Jesus, Jesus empowers the disciples to do the miracle. It's they, they are the ones who have faith. They're the ones that have to take the baskets and pass it out, and they get to distribute the miracle of abundance to the people. That's pretty cool. Right after that, after they're exhausted, they haven't had solitude or alone time, this is what happens. Verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So he knows they need to get some rest. So he's like, hey, go to the other side. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. I just want to pause real quick, just side note about the life of Jesus because we, we want to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Sometimes what I'm seeing in our culture is most of us, when we're exhausted and tired, we don't go by ourselves to get with God to find rest. We go to Netflix, we go to Amazon Prime, we go to social media, we go to news apps, we go to friends to hang out because we're lonely, but we don't recognize that the primary place to develop rest is in the presence of God. We need to get ourselves. Jesus, who is exhausted from a life, days of ministry, rather than sleeping, goes up to a mountainside to pray by himself. That's, that's pretty remarkable. Just a side note. That was just a freebie for you. Um, after he had dismissed them, he goes by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone on the mountainside, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Okay, so... Picture this, Jesus goes by himself at night on top of a mountain. He sees from the mountainside the boat, which is now a considerable distance. These are fishermen. Most of them know how to get across the lake. They're not there. They're exhausted. Just imagine what they were going through, being exhausted in the middle of the night. Okay, you, you see me? You feel that? You see what's going on in this tent? And then Jesus decides to go to them. Now, the Sea of Galilee um, depends on the size. One, one, one part of it is about halfway, th- uh, is about 13 miles wide. The other part is about eight miles wide. And it's seven, about 700 feet below sea level. So Jesus is on a mountain and he walks down the mountain and it says now he's gonna walk to them on a lake. Another side note, Jesus decides to walk on water to get to them. Do you think that's interesting? I think, I think that's a weird story. Of all the things that the Son of God can do, in this decisive moment, he's like, I'm going to walk on water, right? So he walks on water, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified, as you would be. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And then listen to what, what happens with Peter. I love this story. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, tell me to come out to you on the water. Come, Jesus says. Then Peter got down on the boat, out of the boat, walked on water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Then Peter, uh, sorry, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And then 
And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So here's the story of, of Jesus walking out onto the lake, and Peter sees him, and he says, if it's really you, have, tell me to come out. And then he walks on water, and then he begins to sing. Now, this story my whole life I've read as Peter getting a bad rap. He, he failed Jesus. How many of you read it like that? Can we just, how many of you are reading like, there he is, why did you doubt? You of little faith, why did you doubt? Right, this is what I hear most of my life from Jesus in this moment. Always thought Jesus is criticizing Peter for his failure or his lack of faith. But then I discovered, thanks to Dallas Willard, by the way, (laughs) look at this. The quote, will you put it up there? Um, Dallas says in this quote, the phrase, little faith, you have little faith. Go back to the one right before that, sorry. I think there's a, yeah. Uh, It's actually in Greek, this endearing word that Jesus invented, meaning little faiths. And it's never meant as a criticism. It's meant as a loving, endearing, chiding, jokeful, playful word calling his disciples little faiths. Remember what Jesus says about what little faith can do? How are we doing? So this is what Dallas says, you little faiths. He says, here Jesus uses a term that may have been his own invention. That's the Greek word, little faiths. It occurs 10 times in five verses in the gospel. It seems to have been a nickname that he invented as a way of gently chiding his apprentices for their lack of confidence in God and in himself. So here's this, this tone is not you of little faith. It's, oh, little faith. What, why did you doubt? It's playful. It's light. It's joyful. And we think we're getting, Peter, we got the story wrong. This is what I love. He was, why on earth would Peter step out onto the water? His entire life up until this point taught him that that is impossible, except he is a disciple of a rabbi and he can do what his disciple or his rabbi does. And so he says, with permission, if, you, if it's really you, call me out because he does what his father is doing. And so Jesus says, come. He hears his voice and he obeys. And he begins to walk on water. Peter is a hero of faith. He's doing the impossible. And yes, he gets distracted. And Jesus is right there and picks him up. And I just wonder how they get into the boat. Did Jesus pick him up and carry him to the boat? <clears throat> Do you like get down and swim? No, I don't know. Use your imagination. It's an incredible story. Peter has been taught that this is impossible, but because he sees Jesus do it, because he, has the, he heard his voice to come out, he's going to risk and step into what's impossible. And as he fails, his faith increases. Just a few years earlier, he's in a boat fishing, and now he's walking on water. That's some progress. Would you agree? <laughs> I want to be like Peter, holding Jesus' hand, walking on water. When you hear God speaking to you, what tone of voice do you hear? You see, if you are a part of a culture that's disempowering, it will be critical. God's voice will be like a critical, disapproving father. 
making it impossible for you to step out and risk because you don't know where he's going to be. But in a culture of empowerment, it's playful. It's like, why not? Yeah, try it. Go for it. I'll be with you. It's lighthearted. It's joyful. It's generous. It's kind. It's healing. His voice is loving. What kind of voice do you hear as you walk through life with God? All throughout scripture, you see Jesus, God, God is a God who empowers others to do what he did. He invites people into a playful relationship to build his kingdom. And I love it. Like nothing important relies on us. You want me to say that again? Nothing important relies on you. So stop stressing out. Stop striving. If you believe that this, the God that Jesus reveals in the scriptures is real and you come to put your faith in that God, then you need to submit all the other false gods in your head and false voices that's coming with criticism, doubt, insecurity, and disempowerment. And you need to accept the fact that whatever you do will be blessed by the Father if it's of him. And it's not, there's not one path you're gonna take that's determined. That's not how God reveals it. He's gonna partner with you in the outcome of your life, which will be good and beautiful if you trust him. If you trust him with everything you have and rely on him, because he wants to empower you to be free, like his son, to make decisions for yourself. I see that. Because I'm a father, I don't wanna make every decision for my boys. I wanna raise them up to be discerning to know wisdom, to know truth, to make the, the good choice by themselves. The same is true for Jesus and you. That's what a culture of empowerment looks like. God's kingdom is a kingdom of empowerment. How are we doing? I'm gonna do it one, more, one more way to end and then I'm gonna talk about how do we begin to build kingdom culture in our everyday life. I have some practicals today. But I wanna give you one more story that I've been meditating on. It's, it's actually from 1 Corinthians. So you see all throughout scripture, this kingdom empowerment. And then I love Paul, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14. Um, so Paul, in verse 14, he's writing this letter to Corinth who has some serious issues in their church, like way worse than anything you've seen on the news in churches today. I mean, maybe not, actually. There's some bad things going on today. But this is some serious, he's correcting some issues in the church, abuse, spiritual issues of the, you know, uh, of elitism, all sorts of things that are going on. And Paul writes them to correct them. And he writes them this part. And I want you to, this is like what apostleship looks like. He says, verse 14, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians or teachers in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, look at this. Imagine church leadership if this is what we, this is what I'm calling our leadership to, by the way. But imagine if this is what it looked like in Christian culture. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Hey, I'm gonna correct you, but here's what I'm gonna do. I want you to just follow my life. I want you to examine the way I treat my children, the way I treat my wife, the way I get up early, the way I eat, the way I discipline myself, my way of life. I want you to imitate my life. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees 
with what I teach everywhere in every church? What is Paul's strategy for church life? To create a culture around his way of life. And he empowers spiritual sons to embody his way of life, which is what he teaches in all of his churches around the world. There's a congruence between his message and his life, between his words and his actions. And the other piece that we read over is Paul considers his church, the churches he's planted, his children, and he's their father. He's their father. He sees what's going on as a father is responsible for their children. He, as, a, as an apostolic leader, is responsible for the church. And what he does to encourage and strengthen, he doesn't give them a podcast. He doesn't give them seven points on a letter, although this is a letter. What he will do is send spiritual sons who embody his life and his way of life to show and remind them of how he lived. Follow me as I follow Christ is what Paul is saying. So what does that mean? Culture is built relationally. If we want the things of Jesus, it's going to be caught, not taught. Empowerment culture, well, any culture we, we, from this point forward that we develop has to be built relationally. We have to build this relation. We have to, Paul is not saying practice this purpose-driven church and you'll have this beautiful church. He's saying practice this way of life that I will show you and then I will send people to remind you and show you and then you're gonna, you're gonna keep working at it and then eventually you're gonna be showing others. So say in Thessalonians that they embodied his life. They, they imitated him and now because of the way Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica embodied his way of life, they became a model for all of other believers. And that's, that's the way culture is built. It's gotta be experienced. It's gotta be modeled. It's gotta be taught. How are we doing? The culture is built through imitation and modeling. It's caught, not taught. Jesus and Paul are great and great leaders throughout history, including Jonathan Edwards, empowered others to do what they did through relationship, through presence, not just through their words. So how then do we build a kingdom culture in our everyday life, specifically to empowerment? I want to give you some practicals and then we'll pray. And these are basics for me that I'm realizing we probably need to spend a lot of time teaching on, but I'm just gonna throw them at you and you can write them down and think about the implications later in life. How do you begin to construct this empowering culture in your everyday life? Number one is you hear and obey. I think you can reduce discipleship down to that phrase, hear and obey. If we did that, it would be a powerful movement of God in our, on earth right now. If the disciples of Jesus, the church, began to hear his voice, know his voice, and then obey the things that he said. That's all it takes. And that's what you see throughout Scripture. Abraham does this. Isaac does this. Moses does this. Gideon does this. Isaiah does this. Hezekiah does this. You just go down the list. This is it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter. They all are people who hear the voice, and then they begin to obey it. They begin, they hear Jesus and then they obey and they cultivate that relationship over time. There, there's one thing in common. The second is to practice with the small things because the small things are the really big things. Practice with the small. What does that mean? I'll get to it in a second. So how do you hear God's voice then? For those of you that are new to this, I wanted to give you this. How do you begin to cultivate a life where you begin to hear and obey? How do you first hear God's voice? Well, here are some ways that I've learned to hear God's voice. And again, this should be an entire series. Start by listening to the words he's already spoken. Start by obeying the words he's already spoken. 
Okay, so if you want to learn to hear God's voice and obey and be useful in the kingdom of God, obey the words he's already spoken in scripture. All right, that's, that's where it all starts. So how do you hear his voice? Well, listen to where, where he's already spoken. The word of God has been spoken to us. We need to read scripture. Every single day, read scripture. You want to get good at sharing prophetic words or words of knowledge on the street or here? You want to be useful in that way in the kingdom of God? Start with being obedient to what he's already said. Start by reading scripture. The second is to journal and ask questions. So for those of you that have a hard time focusing in your prayer life, just journal down your prayers to God and begin to ask questions about your life, about anything that you're going through. This, the, the other one is to spend time with him every day, even if it's for a few minutes a day. So I realize that for some of us, spending an hour in intercessory prayer is like a marathon. And I get it. It's like, so what do you do? You train to get to that place where I was talking to Alex last night about this, that it's so funny because my favorite part of the day, I can say this honestly, is the morning I get with Jesus right now. That has not always been the case. But I absolutely love my quiet time with Jesus in the morning. It has become this, a space of joy, of playfulness, of, of empowerment, of intimacy. And it didn't start that way. It started as a discipline. It started as a practice. But you got to begin. So it started maybe with five minutes Grab a Bible, pray for five minutes, do it regularly, set out the time and, and just see what happens for the next year. And it will just increase in your capacity to hear God's voice will begin to increase. Um, when you hear, feel, or sense anything, write it down and be obedient to it. Now, most of us are not living our lives in a way where we need to hear God's voice for the day. Like we talk about this all the time. Most of us are not in a place where we need God to show up. It's true. Some of us are in a place right now where we need God to show up right now. And so there's a desperation and hunger for his presence to be real, for his word to speak encouragement and life. There are seasons where we've had that and now, now we're in a comfortable place. So what Alex and I have learned is that if we ever find ourselves in a comfortable place, we have to put ourselves in a place of dependence as a practice or a discipline. So we have to give more than we want to give because that makes us dependent for him to provide financially. Or we have to put ourselves in a place where it becomes risky. Like, should we do these things, sell our house and, and, and move, or should we just stay where we are? But there, there are moments in your life where God wants to train you to be dependent on him. So you got to learn to hear his voice in the small things so that you can obey him when the big things are coming. So that's the point number two is how um, is to, oh, let me stay here for a second before I go to the small things. So Pastor John, is John in here? John's right here. So John, I don't know if you know John's story, but John was the emergency manager uh, at Cal State Long Beach, working with the chancellor. He, if there was a, a tsunami, he planned the evacuation route for all of Cal State Long Beach. He got his master's degree in this. He was accelerating. He was going to be like a city. He was going to be a high up in the city. I mean, he was, his career was putting him in a place of position of authority and influence. And God called him to give up this passion, this calling that he had, actually change his calling to be a, a, a pastor in our church. That was a massive shift. He had a shift. He had pension. He had all sorts of things set up for him. He had like 20 assistants working with him. No, not 20. But he had, he had it made. He was working for the, the government, right? And they take care of their people most of the time, um, unless they shut it down. But they do, 
Sorry, that's, I mean, it's true. Some of, we were, t- we were helping some of you in our church that were shut down, so, but they take care of their people. And he left that to come work for a, a fickle thing like a local church. And he didn't, this is what I realized, though. John's obedience to the big things didn't start with the big things. It started with him and the small things. Like he started listening to God and he started a community garden and he started leading a house church and then he started serving as an elder and, and just it kept growing and growing and then it became this natural progression where like, yes, this is what God's inviting me into. That's one story into ministry, of vocational ministry. The, I have a friend who's in Seal Beach who started texting friends in her prayer time, words of encouragement, and began to have conversations about race and ethnicity and immigration. And when the refugee crisis was going on, she's a, you know, a, a stay-at-home mom who's taking care of her kids, and she felt compelled uh, to do something about it. So she rallies her friends to basically become an advocate or host or adopt a family that, that came as refugees to the United States from Afghanistan to support them in their transition into the United States, having meals, helping them with finding work, making sure that they got uh, the, the subsidized housing. She became a support. Now that's incredible. Would you agree? But it doesn't start with, let's take in refugees. It starts with way over here being faithful to, I'm gonna text friends some encouraging thoughts and risk there. My friend Bob, who wrote a book called The Culture of Honor, I'm sorry, he wrote a book called The Business of Honor, tells this amazing story in his book about how he learned to hear God's voice. And there was one time he was mediating a multi-million dollar contract that had been uh, issues. There were issues. His company didn't get paid a couple of million dollars that they were owed by this massive company. And he was on their way to the mediation with his team and God said, I want you to drive separate and worship the entire drive. It was a two-hour drive. And, and then he gets there and he said, God says to him, I want you to be silent at this meeting. Now, Bob is the, the CEO. So he gets to this meeting. They have all their lawyers and all this stuff. And Bob has a piece of paper and he stays silent. They're negotiating. His team's talking. He just won't, he won't talk. He told his team what he was going to do. And then eventually the guy in charge on the other side says, hey, Bob, let's go to the other room and we'll talk. So he takes Bob into the back room. He says, let's work this out. Here's what I'm prepared to offer you. And Bob puts his head down. He's just silent. He's like, this is, okay, I'm gonna do this. Gives him another, another amount. It's the amount he wants, but he doesn't say anything. So, okay, this is our final offer. It's more than what he was hoping to negotiate. He looks up, shakes his hand, doesn't say a word, walks out, okay? He got more money than he anticipated because he partnered with the Holy Spirit in obedience. How amazing is that? That's an incredible story of how, the God, how God wants to empower you in supernatural ways when you're dealing with multi-million dollar disputes. But Bob says he didn't learn that then. He learned it way back here. So it starts with the small things. Hear God's voice and obey. Here's the list. Here's ways you can do the big little things you can practice. Pray for people in your quiet time. Send a text. Text people encouraging words and affirmations to share with them in person. When God puts someone on your heart, invite them over to hang out. Sometimes God will put people on your heart and you can pray for them then. You can text them encouragement or you can just say, hey, we should hang out. The number one ailment in our modern society is loneliness. Just invite people over. Give money away um, a few times a week. I think money is the, the best way to practice developing a heart of the kingdom. It is the most important discipline in the kingdom. I, I don't have to, we're gonna talk about that later. But this is the most important thing to practice is generosity. 
And so I say, um, you find ways to be creative in developing dependence with things that matter most to you and money matters for most of us. And so practice giving money away. I was talking to Alex and she was talking about, reminding me of generosity. Um, Like you can practice tipping generously every time you buy something. Be generous. This is ways you can cultivate obedience. Um, uh, Give away whatever you can. Ask the Lord to show you throughout the day. And the last one I want to get to is this one. Uh, This is how you build a a kingdom of, of empowerment. Release others to do what you've learned to do. So the way this grows is by learning to give away what you've received. Jesus says, freely you've received, freely give. And I believe right now the solution to much of our crisis is if we would just be in relationship with each other and give away what we've received. And I, just, I, don't, I don't just mean finances. I mean give away anything we've received. And I just wanna speak this out, that people in our church and around the world are searching for mentors. They're looking for older men and women who are just a few years ahead of them that have gone through this stage of life that could help them by just being there saying everything's gonna be okay. Here's what I learned. Try this. If you're 25 years old, hang out with junior high, high school, people that are in college. Hang out with them and become friends and develop relationships to give away what you've learned. If you're 35 years old, hang out with the 20-somethings. If you're 45-year-olds, hang out with the 30-somethings. If you're 50-year-olds, hang out with the 45-year-olds, the 30-year-olds, the 20-somethings. If you're 60, hang out with the 50s. If you're 70, hang out with the 60s, the 50s, and the 40s. If you're 80, hang out with all of them. And what you need to know, I mean it. And church, if you're here, go after the people that are older than you. No matter what they're doing, they have lessons to give you, I promise. One of the greatest things in my life is I have learned how to keep mentors. And I think this is the secret to our success. No joke, other than the resurrected Jesus, this is one secret. From a young age, I've learned to look after people that are older than me and ask to hang out with them. And when they tell me to do something, I actually do what they say if I, it agrees with what, where I'm at. So I have mentors in my life that are in their 30s, that are in their 40s, that are in their 50s, their 60s, their 70s, and 80s right now that I regularly hang out with. That is the greatest gift God could have given me is relationship with men who are business owners, who are pastors, theologians, who are leading movements around the world. And I've learned that that's that's not normal. And it should be normal. We should have a culture of relationships. So old, older men and women, please give your life away to the young generation. Young generation, go after the old generation and take, suck the sap out of their bones. <laughs> I'm serious. Because you have been here and done that if you're in the older generation, we need a multi-generational movement of God. We need 80-year-olds and 15-year-olds leading together. We cannot idolize the youth anymore. We need everyone to participate, everyone to serve, everyone to join the movement of God and give what they can. If you've learned anything, give it away to somebody else. If you're good at business, give your business away and what you've learned to other people who are doing businesses. If you are an educator, work with young educators or students. If you're a mom who's overcome postpartum depression, give what you've overcome away to people that have done that, that need that. If you are somebody who's walked in crisis and there are people in crisis, walk with them and give away what you've learned. If you've watched health be an issue and you've walked through health issues, walk with people who are going through health issues. This is how the kingdom works. This is how it grows. Freely you've received, freely give. This is the culture of empowerment. Thank you for listening. 
For more information, please visit garden.church.